Oh, Lord Jesus, we give you praise this evening. We have every reason to sing, to join with heaven's angels and saints and Christians all across this planet who ponder afresh your birth, your coming, you taking on flesh, you living righteously on our behalf, you, you dying sacrificially in our place, you being raised on the third day and now seated on high in heaven, reigning over all of creation, all that is. We thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. And we pray you would do indeed through your word this evening. Do in our hearts, work in us, strengthen what's weak. Lord, enliven that which is dead. Uh, encourage that which is downcast. We pray you do all that as our eyes turn towards you afresh this evening. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, let me do my part to welcome you and uh, to greet you and to say Merry Christmas to you on this oddly rainy Christmas Eve, uh, but it's warm in here, and indeed there's a, a warmth of the atmosphere as well. Uh, I came across an article this week about staying safe this Christmas. I'm sure many of us know that Christmas time can in indeed be a dangerous time for, for whatever reason, perhaps just the busyness, or because we use more electricity than usual. Uh, there are more house fires, there are more injuries, uh, there are more accidents on the street. And so this article gave tips to try to stay safe this Christmas. And that got me thinking uh, about how many of us are pretty good at Christmas at a safe distance. How many of us are good about Christmas being at a comfortable distance from us, at least religiously or spiritually. You see, not everyone is all in on all that Christmas represents and all that Christ is and has done and what it means. Uh, not everyone's all in, but most Americans are okay with being some in, having some engagement with it, doing some of the Christmas stuff. That's why I say I think we're good at playing it safe at Christmas religiously. Some of us are willing to take part in, let's say, A, B, or C in the Christmas story or the Christmas spirit. But passing on X, Y, or Z, whatever those are for you, if X, Y, or Z just get a little too personal, a little too religious, a little too in your face, a little too controversial. Now, I know I'm somewhat preaching to the choir here tonight because you're here. You're at a church. You're meeting together for a Christmas Eve service. Well done. But I also know that there are some here tonight who aren't so sure they wanted to come. Maybe sometime in the last half hour, you wondered why you did come. Maybe... Maybe you remembered why you don't come to things like this. Uh, maybe, maybe you looked around this room at some point this evening and thought, well, well, this is all just a bit much for me. Well, here's my thesis for us all this evening. A thesis for us to ponder. 
It's that if we will lean in to all that Jesus is and says and has done, with all the significance of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, uncomfortable as that might be for you, there might be great comfort to be had on the other side. Or I could word it differently. There is no point in keeping Jesus at a safe or comfortable distance at Christmas or at any time, but in the fullness of who Christ is and what he's said and what he's done, there is full and true comfort. I say that by way of preface to our passage in John chapter 14, starting in verses 1 to verse 6. Six verses for us to ponder this evening. And it's not a Christmas story per se. It's not about Jesus' birth. But it's his intimate teaching with his disciples in the final hours before his betrayal and arrest on the night before he would be crucified. And so really it's a perfect window into why Jesus came, why he was born, which is indeed the Christmas story. But it reveals here more about who Jesus is than just his birth. It shows us what he came to do, what it all means for us. It speaks of his imminent departure from his disciples, but his promise to return to them one day. It gives us a window into heaven itself and offers the hope of us being with him someday. It's an all-in kind of passage. It's a deep dive into the real meaning of Christmas. It's why Christians get excited about Jesus' birth and why others would prefer to just play it safe with these matters. It's a passage that won't make everyone comfortable, but it is a window into the true and everlasting comfort that can only be found in Jesus at least according to him. Let me read it for you. John 14, Jesus says this to his 12. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, notice that this passage begins with discomfort. It begins with tension, with trouble, with troubled hearts. To them, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now let's consider their troubled hearts, and then we'll consider our own troubled hearts. By their troubled hearts, of course, I mean those to whom Jesus was speaking on that fateful night, the disciples. Their hearts were troubled. Partly because of what came in the previous chapter. In chapter 13, Jesus had this intimate talk with them where he told them, now's the time when I'm going to leave. He'd been with them for three plus years. 
day and night, night and day. They had grown in their understanding of who this was. They had left everything to follow him. They'd grown in their faith. They'd grown in their love for him. And now at this crucial moment where there's a fever pitch of tension against Jesus in Jerusalem, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going to die. I'm going to the Father. I came from the Father, and I'm going back to the Father. You can imagine how difficult that would be for them to hear and for them to understand and why that could possibly be a good thing. And what's harder is that Jesus explained how this was going to unfold through Judas's betrayal and Peter's three denials. Add that to the equation. Their hearts were troubled. And to them, Jesus offers comfort from the one who was also troubled. He said in chapter 13, my spirit is troubled within me in view of the coming cross. And yet, he says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. How about our troubled hearts? Now, we're not in the same shoes or the same sandals of the disciples on that fateful night. They were in an extremely unique situation. Their, their kind of turmoil or troubled heart is exceptionally unique. But every one of us has known trouble. We've had troubled hearts. Many of us in this room would, would confess. They'd raise your hand. Yeah, my heart's troubled this evening. Maybe it's your first Christmas after a loss of a loved one. The first Christmas since the diagnosis. The first Christmas without kids around or grandkids. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's threat. Maybe even the troubled heart of guilt is weighing you down. Wherever you find your heart, however troubled it is, Jesus offers these words, let not your heart be troubled. Let it not. Like this is something you're supposed to do. Let it not be troubled. I don't know if you've seen that old Bob Newhart uh, skit when he was playing the psychotherapist and he just keeps telling the, the, the poor woman who's suffering greatly, just stop it, stop it, stop it. It might seem like Jesus is giving that kind of bad advice right here. Your hearts are troubled, let them not be. But there's more to it. Believe. Believe is really the answer here. Not just belief like positive thinking. Believe. Believe or trust. And specifically in this. Believe in Jesus. He's going to offer three things that they should believe that will help them with their troubled hearts. Believe in Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, that's an astounding statement. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's almost like Jesus assumes the word as before what he says. As you believe in God, so you should believe in me. He's not saying, believe me for this specific occasion. Believe me to help solve this certain problem. 
believe me that I'm like this in this way this time. No, it's much bigger than that. And that's how we would say to a son or daughter, believe me. A father might say to his son, believe me, I'll catch you. The father knows he can. The father will do it. The son needs to trust. But here Jesus says, put your trust in me. Just like as a blanket statement, in me. That's way different than the father who says, trust me right now that I can catch you. Jesus is putting himself on par with God. As he's done so many times in John's telling of the Jesus story thus far. And we saw it last week as a church where Jesus said that he is the good shepherd. And it might not ring in our ears that that's a claim to divinity, but indeed it was. Or before that in chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am taking upon himself the divine name of God revealed in Exodus 3, Yahweh, I am. Jesus here is again putting himself on par with God, and he wants you to believe that. In fact, that's why this whole book was written. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What are you believing? What are you believing in to take it up a notch? Many of us believe some weird things. Believing in Jesus is not that weird. Believing in Jesus is worthy of our belief. And believing in him, like he says here, means believing in him to the full. Not believing him in parts, not believing him for some things. Believing in him. So I wonder if you believe some of the biblical story, some things about Jesus that you think are nice, but maybe you've never come to believe in Jesus. Stock and barrel, all eggs in one basket. That's what he's asking for here. That's what he's inviting you into as a means by which you will have less of a troubled heart than you do right now. Secondly, he says, believe in his good eternal purposes. Don't just believe that he is, believe what he says here. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now here we have a little window into many different massive things. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father after heaven is described, however briefly and mysterious. Christ's return, and the purposes behind all that. It's all laid out in just a couple of quick verses. Here Jesus is encouraging these troubled disciples that him going away from them is not out of abandonment. It's not out of his failure. It's not an unfortunate, sad ending. He's not saying all good things must come to an end. He's not offering the platitude 
of, you know, bittersweet goodbyes or something. Him going away, he's saying, is for their good and for their good eternal purposes. It's part of the plan of God. So if anyone even today would ask, well, where is this Jesus then if he's so special? Well, that could be answered some different ways. He went to the cross, and, and he's, went, he's went to the Father. He's gone to the Father. Through the death and resurrection, he's now seated at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? You can't see him, but he reigns. He's the king. Yes, he went away, but he gives his spirit to dwell within each of his followers, as he'll say in the rest of this chapter and on into the next couple of chapters as he talks about this spirit that he'll give. Where is Jesus? Well, he's with us in the spirit. Where is Jesus today? Well, he went away to prepare a place for his followers. I don't know what that means exactly. He's God, so it doesn't take him long to work on things. You know, I think there's an old Southern Gospel song, you know, if, if creation took six days to make and he's been working on heaven all these years, what's that going to be like? Well, I don't know. I, I haven't done the math. But, but the point is just that he is preparing a dwelling place for us with God. How many rooms do you get? How big is it? I, that doesn't matter. Yes, it's, it's spacious, I'm sure. Yes, it's great. Yes, that's, that's not the point, though. The point is that it's with God and with Jesus. He's come to prepare. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And in due course, he will come again to receive those who have trusted in him, and he will bring them to dwell with God and his Son forever in glory. This should have an effect on troubled hearts. It's a perspective on life that's rare. Jesus here implies that it's not this life, this age, it's not today that is most important compared with the life after, the life to come. Jesus suggests that faith in Jesus and all that he says here can affect our hearts for the good. Oh, not totally. Now, in chapter 16, verse 33, I believe, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Trouble. So Jesus' promise here is not the eradication of trouble. Every Christian knows there's trouble, trouble, trouble. But Jesus said, you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. And here, he doesn't deny that they have troubled hearts, but he says, believe in God, believe also in me, believe in my good, eternal purposes for you. Believe in me coming again. Let that sink in. Let that encourage you. Let that lift you up. As Peter will later write in 1 Peter, he'll say, set your hope fully on the grace of God that's to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. Set your hope fully on Jesus coming back. That's amazing. It's hard, but it's an invitation and an encouragement that we should take to heart. And thirdly, believe that Jesus is the way. 
the way. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, later on famous for his doubting, you know. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Thomas really should have known what Jesus was getting at. Jesus has been laying this out for over three years now. Thomas has been there through it all. He's seen it all. He's heard it all. Jesus has described himself as living water that fully satisfies and gives life like nothing else. Jesus has said that he's the bread of heaven. He's the bread of life which comes down from the Father. He said he's the light of the world. Thomas has heard all this. He says, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus, despite having given all the clues about what he's inferring about himself, now makes it utterly explicit in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It is Jesus' most specific, most punchy, most clear, most emphatic, and most exclusive statement about himself thus far. I am the way. I'm the way to God. I'm the way in. Definite article way. The way, not a way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. The embodiment of truth. I'm the source of truth. I'm the life. You'd think ironic in light of the fact that Jesus has just announced his coming death. But we also read on in John and find that on the third day he was raised and he's conquered death. So of course he does have the answers to death. He is indeed the life. Jesus is claiming absolute exclusivity here about the way to heaven, about the truth, about where to find true life. He doesn't claim to be the sole person in this world who knows the way. That would be saying something. He says he is the way. He he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and either that is ridiculous or it's real. Here's where Christmas gets uncomfortable. Here's where this thing of celebrating the Christ won't allow us to play at the safe edges of what he said and who he was. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, either Jesus is a liar, he said some things he shouldn't have said about himself, or he was a lunatic. He thought that stuff was true, but it's not true. Or Or he's Lord, liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's the Lord. Even if that that stands out in this day and age in which we live. In case Jesus hasn't been clear enough with the way, the truth, the life, he puts the same in the negative when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus savingly, You have to take strong exception to what Jesus says here. You have to believe that this is not helpful. You have to realize, Christian or not, this stands out 
as coming across as exceptionally haughty, unhumble, undeferential, even mean to others who believe otherwise. It runs counter to the spirit of the age. The day we live in today, it's one of pluralism, the only thing you can claim as an exclusive claim is that there are no exclusive claims. And Jesus is doing exclusive claim, exclusive claim, exclusive claim, right after another. Have you heard of that illustration of the elephant and the blind men? The blind men trying to figure out what it is that they're interacting with. We know it's an elephant. They don't know. And so one grabs hold of the trunk of the elephant and says, Ah, this must be a fire hose. And then another grabs hold of a leg and believes it's a medium-sized tree that he's holding on to. And maybe another reaches to the side of the elephant and feels this is sort of a, a rough wall of some sort. We could go on and on. You get the point. And so the argument goes in this illustration that we all have different experiences. And so we should be humble. We should embrace the fact that we have limited knowledge. And no one should presume that others' experiences or interpretations of experience are necessarily wrong because they might be less wrong than your own. Okay. But the truth is, in that illustration, there is an elephant. There's an elephant in the room. There's an elephant. It is an elephant. It doesn't matter whether one thinks it's a fire hose or a wall or a tree. It is in it. It is what it is. There is an elephant. There's an elephant in the room. And we could even concede that we are a bit blind to things, right? We're blind. Spiritually speaking, the scriptures embrace that. They tell us the same thing. We are blind. So if we're the blind men in the story, imagine this scenario. What if the elephant can speak? What if the elephant tells us he's an elephant? Should we stick to hoses and walls and trees? Or should we listen? What if it is an elephant and the elephant can speak and he tells us the truth? Or perhaps you've heard that illustration of a mountain with many paths to the top. You know, God is at the top of the mountain. We're all trying to get to the top. We're trying to get to God. And so some will go this way, and some will go that way, and some will go straight up. And in this picture, the different paths are different religions. You know, there's Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Christianity and different versions of Christianity. We're all trying to get to God, and eventually we'll all get there somehow. So chill out. Okay, but what if God came down from the mountain and told us one way up? That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus here is saying. He is God come down telling us the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to the top unless they go through him. Believe in him and let not your heart be troubled whatever you think of christmas you, you cannot merely play it safe with this jesus who claims to be the way the truth the life 
that no one comes to the Father through, but through him. But he is the way. There is a way. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. There is the way through him. And it is the perfect way. So you can, with your troubled heart, whether from guilt or worry or sickness or loneliness, you can this evening turn to Jesus, believe in Jesus, all that he is, all that he said, all that he has done, all that he said he would do. We can take heed of his encouragement to let go of a troubled heart. Oh, not every trouble, no, but a troubled heart, a, a, a contorted heart, a twisted heart, a devastated heart, a crushed heart. We can let that go as we turn to him, believing he is the way, the truth, and the life. We can put all our eggs in that one basket of all that he is, all that he said, all that he has done. Specifically, his death and his resurrection. All this runs right through the cross, right? That's, that's where they are. They're on the precipice of Jesus' death, which he's already explained is for the sheep. It's for them. It's in their place. He's already explained that if he be lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men to himself savingly. It all runs through the cross and resurrection. There's no point in believing in this Jesus unless there was both his death and resurrection on our behalf. But he did die. And it's really difficult to think of the alternatives to a resurrection when you really know parts of the story. Now, I know this isn't Easter, so I don't want to get off on that tangent too long. But I'd encourage you just to think through whether all the alternatives to a resurrected Christ make sense. The disciples were willing to die for a lie. Uh, the Roman guards rolled the stone away, hid the body, made the whole thing up. On and on it goes. There are maybe seven, eight possible suggested alternatives to the resurrection story. They're actually harder to believe than that God has the power to raise the dead. He does. So Christians here, I invite you this evening, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus doesn't offer this kind of bad psychological advice. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Let not your heart be troubled. As you believe in God, believe in him. And know that he has gone away, not to leave you alone, not so that you couldn't see him. He's gone away to prepare a place for you and me. I don't know what that looks like right now, but he's doing it. And at the right time, he'll come. And he'll bring us to himself. And forever we will be at peace with him and the Father and in fellowship with one another. And that will be all good. Our hearts in that day will never be troubled. That makes my heart less troubled this evening, knowing that there is a day coming when there will be no trouble. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray for your help to trust in it. We thank you for the revelation in your word of Jesus. 
and his life, his sayings, his death and his resurrection, his promises, him coming again, hope of heaven. Lord, we pray that belief in that would spread here this evening. We pray that some, perhaps for the first time this evening, would begin to say, like one man did, I believe, but help my unbelief. None of us believe at 100%, Lord. We confess our unbelief. Perhaps some here today would say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, help us to give you praise as we believe this. Help us, Lord, to rest in your promises for us. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in your glorious plan for our eternal good in fellowship with you. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for us and raised on the third day. We pray and celebrate in his name this evening. Amen.